Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation for today will revisit the U.S. financial sector. So joining me for the conversation, glad to welcome back Brad Ball. Brad is the financials analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Brad, thank you for dropping by Top of the Morning. Looking forward to catching up on the group. Welcome back. Thanks, Dan. Good morning. Glad to be here. So, Brad, maybe we can begin with the broader group. I know there's a few topics within we want to dig into a bit deeper, including Q4 earnings for the banks. But I do want to point out to our listeners, our clients, that CIO currently maintains a least preferred view of the U.S. financial sector. So, Brad, can you speak a bit to that view and maybe some headwinds as well facing the group throughout the course of 2023? So our least preferred view really reflects our expectations that the U.S. financial sector within the S&P 500 will underperform the broader market, the overall S&P 500, over the next 12 months. There's really three main uh, considerations that we're uh, focused on in our in our more cautious view. Uh, first, um, net interest income, which has been uh, the biggest driver of revenues for uh, banks and other balance sheet financials, have really benefited from higher short-term interest rates in the last year. Uh, But that tailwind is diminishing in 2023, as we do expect the Fed's rate hikes to slow. uh, And as a result, we think that deposit uh, costs, the the deposits which fund most of uh, the growth, uh, the loans of of banks uh, in our financial system, uh, will become more expensive as they adjust to the higher market rates. Um, and so market rate increases will essentially be passed along to depositors, and that could put pressure on net interest margins and therefore pressure on net interest income. So that tailwind becomes uh, potentially somewhat of a headwind uh, as we go into this year. Uh, the second concern is in credit quality. Uh, credit quality has been uh, very benign uh, so far, really benefiting significantly during the pandemic from uh, government bailout money going into households and businesses, um, and relatively tight underwriting by the banking institutions really since the financial crisis back in uh, 08, 09. So credit quality has been very good, but the expectation is that it will normalize to higher loss levels uh, over the coming uh, period, perhaps the next couple of years, we're already seeing delinquency rates starting to normalize. That is, people who are late in making their payments, and that generally translates into higher loss rates anywhere from six to 12 months after uh, the delinquency rates rise. And we are seeing, uh, as I said, normalization in delinquency rates. If unemployment is worse than the current market expectation, that's another uh, potential cause for concern that could deteriorate credit quality even faster than expected. So again, the second concern has to do with credit quality deteriorating from an otherwise very benign level today. And then the third is capital. Capital has been uh, proven adequate, uh, you know, through the financial crisis, actually through the pandemic. Uh, and then more recently with the Fed stress test last June, um, there is sufficient capital in the system to support uh, banks' activities, even in a severely adverse case scenario, uh, again, as per the Fed stress test. But our, our belief is that the capital levels, the surplus of capital has diminished somewhat, uh, mainly due to share repurchases and because of an accounting convention with rates rising. 
and therefore the excess capital will be less in 23, and therefore banks will not be in as strong a position to buy back stock or otherwise return capital to shareholders as they have been. The, f- the final point I would make, and again supporting the least preferred view, uh, Dan, is that while the banks do appear uh, somewhat inexpensive on a price-to-earnings basis versus the S&P 500, um, we think it's better to view them on a price-to-tangible book value basis during a period when the economic environment is as uncertain as it is today. And for that reason, on a price-to-tangible book value basis, the financials and the banks look to be more in line with their historical valuation, uh, not as cheap as they appear on a PE basis. Well, Brad, thank you for walking us through the factors that support that least preferred view of U.S. financials by the chief investment office. I mentioned a few moments ago how at this point, I know we're speaking here on Tuesday, February 14th, the Q4 corporate reporting season at this point is largely behind us. Any reflections, takeaways in particular, Brad, namely with respect to maybe the banks, the consumer names that you can share with us today? Sure. Yes, you're right. Most of the financials have reported their fourth quarter results, and a little more than half of those have beat uh, street estimates, uh, which had been coming down for the past couple of months as analysts have uh, grown more cautious about the macro economy. Um, Where there were beats, uh, they were mainly due to a mix of higher than expected net interest income and lower expenses, And the roughly 40% of banks that missed their uh, fourth quarter uh, results relative to estimates um, really uh, missed because of a higher than expected loan loss provision. Those those institutions are building up their reserve on their balance sheet to protect against uh, potential uh, future credit losses. Uh, So the banks themselves are acknowledging that there's a, a potentially rough waters ahead with respect to credit. I'd say there are really a couple of main takeaways worth noting uh, from the fourth quarter. Uh, First, loan growth uh, was very strong. Uh, The combination of loan growth and rising rates did drive uh, net interest income uh, growth. And like I said, there were several banks that exceeded expectations because they beat on net interest income. Um, It does appear that margins, which have benefited from rate increases over the course of 2022, have probably topped out in the fourth quarter and and maybe a little bit of a a benefit here in the first quarter. So we're topping as we speak with respect to net interest margins. And again, I highlighted earlier that that's one of the risks that I see for the uh, balance of 2023, and that is margins could come down. A second takeaway from the quarter is that fee income categories like mortgage banking and investment banking were dampened, uh, certainly by a challenging environment last year. Uh, rising interest rates definitely had a negative impact on mortgage activity. Um, but there were other parts of fee income that offset and helped uh, to the positive, like trading activity, wealth management was generally positive, and the insurance brokerage business has been a positive offset as well. The third point about the quarter is that you saw ongoing investment in technology. Every one of the uh, institutions we follow has been investing aggressively in hiring new staff and beefing up their technology capabilities. And that has, uh, combined with wage inflation, that has put a little bit of stress on uh, expense growth and overall operating leverage, that is revenue growth exceeding expense growth. 
But I do think there's still room for cost controls. Uh, I do think that managements generally have a hand on the lever to control expenses and uh, produce positive operating leverage going forward. So you could argue that in the fourth quarter, what, what came out was that the financials did a good job of managing what they can control. Um, but and, and by the way, the market has applauded that with the stocks having uh, rallied nicely uh, year to date. Um, but we do think that as the uh, year uh, progresses, um, that the really the outlook for the financials uh, fundamentally is going to depend a lot on the macro environment. Cyclical factors will increasingly put pressure, in my view, on earnings growth. And I do think there's risk to earnings downside as we progress through this year and into next. Well, Brad, thank you for sharing some takeaways there from the Q4 reporting season. As we look out throughout the course of 2023, what factors do you feel will influence the performance of the group? And are there any key trends or themes specific to the group that you'll be monitoring? So following up on my prior answer, I do think the macroeconomic outlook will likely be key to financial stock performance uh, from here. Uh, you know, the area where I'm most focused is on unemployment. Uh, as you know, the labor market has been very strong. It's held up uh, better, I think, than most had expected. Unemployment uh, just hit an all-time low uh, recently. And um I do think, though, that unemployment could be vulnerable as the Fed uh, clearly needs to uh, raise rates sufficiently and maintain rates at a high level for long enough to put pressure on the demand side of the economy if they hope to contain inflation and get it back down to anywhere near their 2% long-term target. Um, Again, this will likely put some pressure on the financials to the extent that it impacts growth in uh, loans or, or impacts uh, client activity more broadly. Um, and so it, it could, in fact, uh, lead to a depression or a negative impact on the growth of net interest income. And it could certainly uh, lead to a negative impact on the outlook for credit. Uh, another key theme, I think, uh, that will be a focus here this year is on uh, the regulatory environment. Now, I view the regulatory environment for financials as a pendulum, uh, which, in my view, is currently swinging against the industry. I, you know, I think we had uh, during the prior administration maybe a favorable uh, climate. Uh, today, we've got newly appointed leadership at the key regulatory agencies like the Fed, the FDIC, the CFPB, the SEC. All of these folks have an ideological bias that favors more controls and tighter constraints on financials broadly. One example is just recently the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, released a notice of proposed rulemaking which targets to cut credit card late fees. Uh, The uh, director there is focused on trying to eliminate excessive fees and and is proposed to cut late fees by as much as two-thirds. Um, now, this isn't the end of the world. Some of the credit card issuers may be more negatively impacted than others. Um, but I think it does raise the fact that we uh, could see these kinds of challenges coming from the regulatory agencies, uh, both in uh, how the financials conduct their business, um, as well as sort of the two-pronged challenge of higher compliance costs and potentially higher capital costs, as I mentioned earlier, 
I do think the level of excess capital in the industry is a little bit tighter, and I think the regulatory environment is a factor in that consideration. So, um, you know, with that, uh, I think those are two, really the two main areas uh, that that uh, you know themes that I would I think will prevail uh, as we progress through this year, Dan. Quite a lot there, it sounds like, Brad, especially on the regulatory front, as you pointed out, that we'll monitor throughout the course of 2023. Before we close out this morning, Brad, from an investor's vantage point, what would you say are some key questions specific to the group that should be on the minds of investors? Sure. Yeah. So I, I present a case that um, I think it's you know relatively more downside risk uh, relative to the upside and and in that context I think investors really should be focused on financials that are insulated from the potential uh, macroeconomic pressures that we talked about they they should either have uh, modest balance sheet and, and loan exposure uh, and therefore are less uh, susceptible to potentially uh, higher credit losses. Uh, or their business models should be more resilient in a downturn. They they should be less uh, cyclical and less uh, driven by net interest income, uh, which I think is a pressure point that we may face this year. Um, so I think investors should be asking the question: Which firms uh, have the most financial flexibility? Uh, you know, who can withstand higher rates and continue to grow revenues? Uh, which have the most excess capital to be able to continue to support share repurchases as uh, as uh, the, the the regulatory environment may get a little bit tougher, as I mentioned. And then finally, I would ask um, which companies are positioned to manage through this economic downturn, gain market share, and um, potentially become stronger on the other side. So uh, with a longer-term investment horizon, I think there are several leading financial institutions that will endure uh, that are, frankly, uh, you know, strong balance sheets, good capital positions, and good business mix. They can pick up market share from weaker competitors and, like I said, become stronger uh, when we do recover from the uh, expected recession. Um, so it's a defensive posture, but not one that uh, means avoiding uh, owning financials entirely. Uh, just expect uh, that financials uh, broadly will underperform the, the broader market. Uh, and therefore have an underweight position uh, relative to the broader market. Brad, very productive conversation this morning. Thank you again for dropping by the podcast to keep our listeners, our clients informed on CIO's thinking when it comes to the U.S. financials, hitting on some Q4 earnings takeaways, trends, themes specific to the group, as well as investment considerations. So thank you again, Brad, and looking forward to following up on the group as we progress throughout the year. Sure thing, Dan. Happy to do it. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.